You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. So what's the difference between Kraft macaroni and cheese and your grandma's macaroni and cheese? Yeah, there's a ton in there, right? You know what I'm talking about. The Kraft macaroni and cheese, this blue rectangular box with that little powdered cheese packet, fragrant sachet for your kitchen. That over there, and then whatever your grandma made through whatever alchemy she amassed over decades in the kitchen that came out of her oven, like this thing doesn't even look like this. How many of you are Kraft fans? Yeah. When you think about your grandma's mac and cheese, how many of you go in that direction? Yeah, that's what I thought. Confession time. This is a cheesy analogy. Oh, it's so hard. These are the mac and cheese jokes. For me, most of my life, in all seriousness, my relationship with the Holy Spirit was so different from what it could have been that it was almost unrecognizable from what it should have been. It didn't even look like the same thing. So this morning, we're going to wrap up our teaching series called The Holy Spirit, and I want to drop us in the kitchen of somebody who's walked with the Holy Spirit for decades, the Apostle Paul. Week one, we talked about the person of the Holy Spirit, who he is, what he's like, and why so many Christians are scared to talk about him. Week two, we talked about the work of the Holy Spirit and the life of the individual, all of Romans 8, one of my favorite chapters in all of Scripture. Last week, we talked about the work of the Holy Spirit and the life of the church, 1 Corinthians 12, a big chunk about diversity and unity and how all these things go together in a Spirit-led church. This morning, we're going to anchor our time together in four questions. And these are questions that um, I get a lot as a pastor. They're questions that I've asked myself And I think that they are questions that probably flow very naturally out of what we've talked about and studied these last three weeks. And I want to give them to you right up front just so you know where we're going. Question number one is going to be, well, what about spiritual gifts? How do I find mine? What do I do with it? Question number two, can the Holy Spirit lead Christians to disagree? That's going to be fun. Question number three, what does it mean to walk with the Spirit? Like Casper the Friendly Ghost or what's going on? And then last one, what happens if I ignore the Holy Spirit in my life? Quick final word before we get into this. Um, Each one of these questions could be a message in and of itself, okay? We could do this series on the Holy Spirit for like the next couple of months, and it's just the tip of the iceberg. And so here's a little word on that. It's the nature of the church at least our church, for Sunday morning, for messages, for sermons or sermon series, to start something. This is where we get the ball rolling. But over the course of a week in your community groups, in text conversations with those that you're doing life with, in study groups and over the coffee tables at Starbucks or your own home, that's where the real work happens, right? And so... 
after today, if this series has raised any questions for you, continue the conversation. This is not it. 40 minutes of preaching on a Sunday morning do not make for a healthy Christian. They encourage you and equip you and teach you and challenge you, but the real heavy lifting happens out there. So with that, let's dive in and get to it because we've got a lot of ground to cover. Question number one, about spiritual gifts, how do I find mine? Maybe you were asking that last week because we took a look at 1 Corinthians 12. We rattled off a series of spiritual gifts. There's actually five places in the New Testament where spiritual gifts are listed. And maybe you want to know, well, what do I do about that? And for this, I want to head to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. This is a section of scripture that our staff and our elders have really rallied around this year because here's what I believe. I believe that a chaotic world needs a strong church. I've heard me say that a couple of times in this series. So listen to Paul's words here and tell me if this doesn't sound like he is seeing our world right now. This is Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, so there's five gifts, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Great vision. Why is that so important? So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine and human cunning by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now, there's a ton here, but here's what I want us to see. On the heels of 1 Corinthians 12, where we were last week, Paul names more gifts. Here are five. Then he imagines this beautiful metaphor, very similar to 1 Corinthians 12, where he says, if all of these gifts are working properly, that's verse 16, if everything's going the way it should, then the body builds itself up. We get strong, we get mature, we get solid. A chaotic world needs a strong church. And for Paul, knowing the gifts of the Spirit and how to use them is the key to building that church up. Now, this is really empowering to me, freeing for me, because it tells me that the strength of North Canton Chapel is not up here. The strength of North Canton Chapel is out there. It's you. My job and the job of our staff is to help you discover what God has put in you and then step into whatever God has for you. And part of that is understanding your spiritual gifts. And I hope this is, in one part, challenging and also comforting to you. So if you're watching online this morning or if you're here in the room, um, our online community pastor, Matt Brumfield, just dropped a link for a spiritual gifts assessment into the comment thread on Facebook. If you're in the room, you can hop onto our resources tab and you can get that for yourself. Maybe you've never taken a spiritual gifts assessment. It's a great starting point. But I need to provide some cautionary words for clarity. Because you're going to hop in and go like, all right, what are my spiritual gifts? I'm going to go find them. It's going to be great. Three cautionary words for clarity about this idea of spiritual gifts. First, beware of the limits of self-assessment. I can take a spiritual gifts inventory 
I can read all of the descriptions, and I can walk away feeling great about myself because that experience just gave me some kind of affirmation or permission to do something. But self-awareness is not where this starts. That's a caution. I have seen and I've taken dozens of spiritual gifts tests over the years, but ironically, they're all missing the same thing. The Holy Spirit. Because they're just words on a paper. Do you know how the early church discovered their spiritual gifts? They prayed for the Lord to lead them. They felt his leadership in their life. They stepped out and they did something. That's how we are meant to be led. Everything else is just a tool to get us there. So self-assessment is good, but it's limited. Second cautionary word around spiritual gifts. Expect some fear. Prepare for it. Last week we talked about talents that you're born with, skills that you develop, and then gifts that God gives you. Now here's what happens in a church. I know this, and you know this. We take a look around, we feel like God's calling us to do something beyond our comfort zone, and we feel that little bit of fear there, and we resist. And we go, God, I don't don't think you're calling me to do that. Right, you've heard the old thing, like if you ever wanna make God laugh, tell him what you won't do. (laughs) And then he's like, here you go. What's with that? Me being personal, usually what that is, that resistance comes from a place where I am trusting confidence in myself as the recipient of the gifts rather than trusting my confidence in God, the giver of the gifts. Maybe you can resonate with this. I think many of us can. For me, I was called to vocational ministry when I was 18 years old, okay? Vocationally, I'm a pastor. This is my job, Right? And so I went off to Bible college and I worked on talents that God gave me and I tried to refine skills that I've developed over time. And here I am 22 years later and there are elements of pastoral ministry that I absolutely love. And there's things that scare me spitless. There's parts of my job, there's parts of my calling that like, oh, it's so hard for me to do it. Really, God, you can't be calling me to do that. No, 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 that's gotta be somebody else. Anybody resonate that when it comes to your spiritual gifts? <laughs> no, 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 no. God, that, mm, that's that person, not me. <laughs> Maybe this is me. I think it's probably not just me. When I lean into those areas, that's when I feel my Father's pleasure the greatest because I'm actively trusting Him rather than myself. And so that fear, you push through that fear out of obedience and love to your Father. Using your spiritual gifts is not about confidence in yourself. It's about confidence in God. So third cautionary word about spiritual gifts before we move on. We should recognize the power of community. No spiritual gift is used in isolation. God gave you your gifts, and the primary playground for using those gifts is the local church. These people around you. These people that are in your community groups. Understanding your spiritual gifts apart from community is like going on a date with a mirror. Like I can plop it down across the table for me and I can feel really good for like 30 seconds. The longer I sit there, the more ridiculous I look because it's not meant to be this way. You are meant to give away everything that God has put in you for the betterment of the church, the people around you. And so ask questions. People who know you well, ask them and say, hey, where do you see me living too safe? Where do you see me holding back from what God wants to do? Where do you see me getting discouraged in my spiritual gifts? Am I not acting in obedience? And then listen to what they say. 
So much more on spiritual gifts. But that's where I want to just kind of give you a little bit of a nudge this morning. That's question number one. Question number two. Question number two. Can the Holy Spirit lead Christians to disagree? Now, that's a great question because here's the thinking, right? If there's one spirit, one spirit that's living in all believers, right? One spirit that's calling us all to unity, even though we're diverse, we're unified. Why why do we seem so willing to fight about stuff? You know what I'm talking about? Like, there's like 400 different denominations. And Christians who are supposed to be these, like, generous, loving, thoughtful, caring, selfless people. Why are we so punchy? What's under that? That can't be the spirit, right? Somebody's got to be wrong. (laughs) I want to give you a helpful way to think about this, okay? I want to give you three categories, and then we're going to go right into Scripture where we're going to see all these categories play out. Three categories. Dogma, doctrine, and preference, Let me define these for you. Dogma, okay? This is the stuff that, like, gotta be saved to believe. This is like salvation by faith alone in Christ alone, right? This is the full divinity and humanity of Jesus, the inspiration of Holy Scripture. Like, this is the big stuff. Outside of this is false teaching, dogma. Then there's doctrine. Doctrine is stuff like post-millennial or pre-millennial eschatology. Yeah, (laughs) Believer's baptism versus infant baptism. Predestination, free will. Temperature just kind of rose a little bit when I just said that. You feel it? This is doctrine. This is stuff that, like, this isn't as important as dogma, but you better be informed about it. We'll contend for this stuff. Then there's preference, this bucket over here. Preference. This is like suit and tie versus jeans and a t-shirt. Guitar versus piano. Hymns versus choruses. Okay? Preference. Dogma, doctrine, and preference. What's the point? I've got a ton of preferences, and you do too. And I'm willing to give up on most of them because they don't weigh that much to me. Scriptural doctrines, I've got several of them that I believe in deeply and I would contend for, and we contend for as a church. You want to talk about why I believe Scripture teaches believer's baptism over infant baptism? Man, we can run for a long time on that one. Dogma. I've got a few dogmas that I would literally take a bullet for. Somebody come up to me and put a gun to my head and said, if you believe that salvation is through Christ alone, I'm going to pull the trigger. I say, well, go for it, because I would rather die than deny that doctrine, because that's a big deal to me. Here's the art. The problem comes when we treat dogma like preference and preference like dogma. Some Christians want everything in the dogma category. That leads to rigid, cold-hearted legalism, where you're only acceptable before God if you were a tie. Some Christians want everything in the preferences category. This leads to limp-spined liberalism, where we don't believe anything. We need to treat dogma like dogma, doctrine like doctrine, preference like preference. The key is knowing how these play out in the life of the church. And for this, we're going to go right to Scripture. Dogma, where do we see this? Galatians chapter 2. Okay, you can get there. It's going to be on the screens. Paul is answering this question. Does keeping the Old Testament law make me right with God, like abstaining from bacon and pork and other dietary restrictions, or is Jesus enough? It can't be both. And that's a big deal to Paul. 
This isn't carpet color. This isn't worship style. Now here's the background. Peter, lion-hearted, bold-faced Peter, was eating with the Gentiles, those of us who are not ethnically Jewish. He's sitting there eating with bacon sandwich. <laughs> and here's what happens. Galatians 2, verse 11. This is Paul explaining this. He says, But when Cephas, that's another name for Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Whoa! Like, Paul, this is Peter. Like, walk with Jesus, best friend of Jesus. Peter, like, walk on water. Whoa! You opposed him because he stood condemned? What did he do? For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, sitting at their table, enjoying everything. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, feeling, fearing the circumcision party. would drop the bacon sandwich. I'm scared of these guys because they're going to call me out. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? Here's the point. Peter, your dogma is wrong. You're, you're saying with your mouth that we're justified by faith alone and Christ alone, but then your life is way out of step with that. You're living out of step with the gospel. So I'm going to call you on it. Paul, dogma inflamed, opposes him firmly, contentiously, conf confrontationally. That's what dogma does when you get it wrong. How about doctrine? This is Paul in Romans 14. Interestingly, similar issue. You don't have to turn there. I'll summarize this one. This time, the question coming from a pagan Roman audience was, can we eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols? This is a doctrinal discussion. Sounds odd to our ears, but that was kind of the issue of the day. And so Paul, in answering this question, saying, can we eat meat sacrificed to idols? Paul, tell us about this doctrine. What are we supposed to do? Paul basically says, look, do whatever you want. But if in doing that, you cause your brother or sister who came out of that environment to slip back into sin, don't do it. Don't go near it. If they go back to the temple and like maybe they make a sacrifice on their own and then before long they're sacrificing to a pagan god, don't do it. His point is you can get your doctrine all right, but if you forget about love, it doesn't matter. So be loving and be thoughtful. That's doctrine. How about preference? Paul again, this time in Acts chapter 15. Paul and his best friend Barnabas were like church planting duo. They're like Batman and Robin, Lone Ranger and Tonto. They're everywhere together. Paul and Barnabas. But then something happens in Acts chapter 15. They got to deal with something. Here's the story. You don't, have to, you don't have to turn there, but you can if you want. Acts chapter 15. They have a disagreement. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord, and let's see how they're doing. Great idea. What a good pastor. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. What's with these guys and their two names? But Paul thought it best not to take with them the one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had gone with them, or not gone with them to the work. So there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Paul going this way, Barnabas going this way, okay? Here's the deal. Barnabas says, hey, let's take my cousin, John Mark. He's going to be great for us. Love this guy, my cousin. 
And Paul goes, he left us back there. <laughs> Not at all. They split. They go this way. Now here's the question. Is Paul wrong? Is he out of step with the Spirit? Is Barnabas sinning? Is he disobeying God? No. They're seeing things differently. And just to make you feel good about it, the New Testament suggests that they eventually reconcile. So you got dogma, doctrine, and preference. You get that? Now hear how these scenarios, all in the life of Paul, handled in three different ways. So practically, what does this mean for us? Back to the initial question. Can the Holy Spirit lead Christians to disagree? On issues of dogma, it seems very unlikely. Galatians 2, is Jesus enough? There's only one answer for that. We go to war over it. How about doctrine? Can the Holy Spirit lead two Christians to disagree on issues of doctrine? It seems carefully. This is Romans 14. There are matters of conscience for the individual Christian that must be weighed carefully. In this category, I would put things like alcohol, movies, being a Pittsburgh Steelers fan. Bill and Shelly, I see you. These are things that you got to go pray about. <laughs> and they may determine the level of community, closeness, or affiliation we can have, but it should never limit your mutual respect or love for others when they disagree with you. That's doctrine. How about preference? Can the Holy Spirit lead two Christians to disagree on issues of preference? Probably. Acts 15. The expectations, even though it's going to be sometimes painful, you're going to disagree with other Christians. The question is, how do you disagree? What is the spirit of your disagreement? You value piano over guitar? Fine. Don't be a jerk about it. You like creaming your coffee instead of drinking it black like Jesus did? Fine. <laughs> I'm going to get fired. All right. But we need to push this one step further. Because the question isn't, can the Holy Spirit lead Christians differently? But what do I do when he does? How am I supposed to act? What does God expect of me? I'm going to say this really slow because it's super important. On issues of dogma, contend firmly. Contend firmly on issues of dogma. On issues of doctrine, think clearly. Think clearly about what you believe and why. On issues of preference, live graciously. And here's where this all boils down. The Holy Spirit will never lead you to a place where you are less loving in any category. If you find yourself in a place where you are less loving to those around you, your family, your neighbors, your people in your church, your spouse, your weird uncle, the Holy Spirit did not lead you there. Let me get painfully practical so you understand what I'm talking about. Some of you know where I'm going. There are those in this church, as in every church, who will choose to get a vaccine. And there are people who love the Lord Jesus, 
are submitting their, their life to the will of the Father and are seeking the Holy Spirit in their lives. Then there are people who will not get a vaccine. There are also people who love the Lord Jesus and are submitting their life to the will of the Father and are seeking the, will, or the leadership of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Can you have an opinion? Sure you can. But the volume of your opinion can never be louder than your love for others. I'm glad you agree. (laughs) The high calling of the church in a divided world is to offer love where everyone else offers anger. And if you find yourself consistently angry at those with whom you disagree, you are likely not being led by the Holy Spirit. The hallmark of a Christian, especially in a corporate context called the local church, is the predisposition, the blood-bought inclination, the increasingly strong reflex to willingly, eagerly, enthusiastically love those with whom I disagree, even when I may feel prone to naturally do other. So yes, the Holy Spirit can lead two Christians to disagree, but he will never lead you to be unloving. Now hear the voice in your head. You go, oh, that's so hard. Welcome to church. (laughs) How do I do that? Fair question. Question number three. What does it mean to walk with the Spirit? (laughs) Because this isn't like a one and done thing. So let's back up and do some theology real quick. When you confess Christ, the moment you confess Christ and say, I am a great sinner and Jesus is a greater savior. I need to ask for God's forgiveness and I accept the righteousness of Christ. When you say that, the Holy Spirit immediately takes up residence in you. That's what Jesus means when he says the Holy Spirit will be in you. We've seen that in the bumper video throughout this entire series. It's in John. It's instantaneous. It happens. It's called indwelling. But then... A second thing starts. A process begins in your life. This is called filling. The Holy Spirit starts to fill you. Filling has a starting point at the moment of your conversion, and it isn't over until you get to heaven. It's a lifelong thing, and it's never complete. And like a tidal pool that fills in and recedes, filling changes depending on how you interact with sin. Positionally, you're saved, right? Sin has no power over you. But practically, sin's still here, isn't it? There's this thing called life that we've got to get through, and it's really tough. So how do I walk with the Spirit through the ups and downs, the backs and forths of life? Back to Ephesians. Paul gives us a great look into what filling looks like. Ephesians chapter 5. Take a look in verse 15. I'm going to look at two verses first. Talk about that, and we're going to get to the rest. Ephesians 5, 15. Here's what he says. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. So Paul starts off with this really sobering word. Look how you walk. Why? Because life is quick, and the days are evil. He sees two things very clearly right up front before he tells us what to do about it. First, he sees the fragility of life. You ever stop to think about how quick life passes? I was talking with somebody about this this last week, and they made the comment rather poetically that if you just listen hard enough, you can hear the ticking of a clock. 
<laughs> Life is very fragile, so quick. But then secondly, in addition to the fragility of life, Paul also sees the, f- the futility of the world. He makes this quick little aside when he says, since the days are evil. Now it should comfort us in a weird way to know that Paul saw his days evil too, not just us. This isn't a new thing. Fragility of life and futility of the world. These are the lenses through which Paul sees things. And he wants us to sit with that for a second until we almost have this question just explode out of us. We're like, well, what am I supposed to do, Paul? If life is so quick and everything's so dark, like, where am I supposed to find peace and promise and joy and hope? Like, what do I do, Paul? Where do I go? Give me something. And the next five verses are his answer. Verse 17, he says, Therefore, do not be foolish. Understand what the will of the Lord is. And don't get drunk with wine, because that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. What's that look like, Paul? He gives us three things. Addressing one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is really a question about control. What's controlling your life? What's influencing your decision making? Your gut? Paul's essentially asking the Ephesians, have you ever been drunk? Shocking question. And in a Greco-Roman world, the answer for most of them was, "Mm, yeah, sorry, Paul. That feeling of being completely under the control of something outside of yourself, that's how under the control of the Holy Spirit I want you to be. Only this kind of control leads to dark and reckless and selfish and terrible things. This kind of control leads to life and goodness and restorative things and beautiful things. Kind of a shocking metaphor, isn't it? And so Paul expounds a bit. In verse 17, he says, if we're going to build a life that's ready for the Spirit's filling, three practices must be in place. Have you ever left a glass sit in your sink for a little bit too long? And it's got like that little ring of schmutz, that's what I'm calling it, on there. By the way, my way of dealing with that is what most men tend to do is like we squirt some Dawn in there and then like fill it up and come back in a half hour, right? It's not the way to deal with that. What Paul actually is saying is, hey, wait, we're actually, before you can receive the Spirit's filling in your life consistently, there's some stuff that you need to get out of there. There's some things in your life that make your life conducive to receiving the filling of the Holy Spirit. What are they? And he gives you three of them. First one is addressing one another, and then he says in Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Here's what I love about this. He's saying, watch what comes out of your mouth. Or better, watch what comes off of your fingers or your thumbs when you're typing. And you push back on that and you go, whoa, 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 that's talking about worship. How do you know what you worship? By what comes out of your mouth. It's interesting what he says is addressing one another. How do you know what you're counting on for hope? By what you talk about. And Paul goes, hey, wait, wait, wait. If you're going to talk about anything, talk about the greatness of God. Talk about how good he is. Second thing he mentions is giving thanks. This one's unbelievable. Always and for everything. And you're like, I don't know about that one, Paul. Because for Paul, this meant suffering. 
giving thanks for everything, always, all the time? Paul. The last one is he says, submitting to one another. Oh, geez. So it's what comes out of my mouth, what I let into my heart, and then lastly, how I see my relationships. Positioning myself as a servant of others is a form of worship to Jesus. Well, that sounds great, Paul. But even if I can watch what comes out of my mouth, watch what comes into my heart, and pay attention to my relationships, what if I just don't want to, Paul? What if I'd rather do this thing called life on my own terms? <laughs> Question number four. What happens if I ignore the Holy Spirit? We're going to end in a dark place. Because even though this is negative, this is probably the most practical question. And so I want to actually close our series with this. Everything we've covered these last four weeks will dissipate in a whisper of smoke unless you do something about it. And I want to equip you because this is a real thing. There's more at stake here than you would ever believe. Back to Ephesians, Paul offers us words that are equal parts clarity and challenge. Here's what he says this is Ephesians 4, 25. He says, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Every married couple in the room goes, oh, ouch. Give no opportunity for the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up as it fits the occasion so that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. Again, so much here, enough to fill like 45 more minutes. But I want to zero in on that one word, grieve. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Why the word grieve? I would have expected like, do not anger the Holy Spirit or don't disappoint the Holy Spirit. Why the word grieve? What is that? Spurgeon gives us some helpful insight. Here's what he says. There's something very touching in this admonition. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. It does not say do not make him angry. A more delicate and tender term is used, grief. For grief is a sweet combination of anger and love. It is anger, but all the gall is taken out of it. Love sweetens anger, turns the edge of it, not against the person, but against the offense. What's he saying? He's saying that the Holy Spirit's response when we break away from God's best for us is grief. It's solemn anger without the edge. He's angry, but his anger toward us is tempered by love for us. This is the heavy sigh of a grieving parent who watched their child make foolish choice after foolish choice, and you just go, Like half of me is so angry with you. The other half of me is so sad for you. You know I love you. <sighs> Only the Holy Spirit feels all of that with no divided heart. 
It's anger inseparable from love. It's frustration drenched in mercy. So North Kent Chapel, hear me on this. We ignore, or when we ignore the Holy Spirit and entertain sin publicly or privately in the places seen by others or the hidden places of my own heart and mind, over time, we condition ourselves to a life of disobedience to God, distance from God, and eventually desensitivity toward God. We become callous towards sin and we can't feel his leadership anymore. And I don't want that for you, and God doesn't want that for you. Well, maybe when I said that, you're sitting here and you hear yourself and you're going, yeah, I have some calluses in some spots in my life. Some of them are pretty big. Some of those calluses are pretty thick. Stuff I've been sitting with for a while. And maybe you're holding on to something, right? And it's big. And you will not let it go. You will not open up and release that thing. It won't come loose. You felt pushed and prodded and prompted, but you're still holding on. (laughs) I get you. For me, just getting personal, there are seasons of my life where I have built calluses so thick I forgot what it was to feel anything. Through my own rebellion, the laughable truth that I found myself believing was, no, God, what I've got, even in my silence, is better than what you could give me. (laughs) The good news of the gospel is that our God loves rebels. The good news of the gospel is that our God softens hard hearts. The good news of the gospel is that our God pursues his wayward children. You are never too dead. You are never too lost. You are never too far. Your sin is deep. Fine. His mercy is deeper. Your regret is strong. Good news. His grace is stronger. You can ignore him all you want, and you will find when you lift your head that he is still chasing you down. To quote Eugene Peterson, God is on your side, he is coming after you, and he is relentless. (laughs) If disobedience leads to distance, leads to desensitivity, the opposite is also true. Repentance leads to intimacy, which leads to freedom. The only question is, which life do you want? (laughs) Ripping off a callus is really hard and painful. Short-term pain, though, is better than a lifetime of callousness and a Christless eternity. You don't want that. So here's where we're going next. Um, I think it's right to conclude this series, and even today, by celebrating communion. And we're going to sit with it. Hopefully you got your communion elements on your way in. If you didn't, you can head out there um, discreetly, and you can pick them up. Uh, For those of you at home, you can go ahead and get those elements ready. Here's what I want us to do. In these quiet moments, Micah's gonna come out and we're gonna have some music just kind of softly bedding underneath. And we wanna give you some space. We got time. I'm gonna give you some space just to sit and you say, okay, Holy Spirit, I'm yours and you deal with me how you want. And then I just want you to sit there. I don't want you to be in a hurry to get that bread or that grape juice in your mouth. I want you just to sit. 
Ask the Holy Spirit if there's something you need to go and let go. If you don't know him, if you don't know this Jesus, man, you're missing out. We create these spaces because they're really, really important. Time to respond. So maybe for you, you just want to sit in your seat, do some business with the Lord, that's fine. Maybe you want to come up and kneel here at the altar. Sometimes the physical is a catalyst for the spiritual. And you just want to take a couple moments and say, okay, Lord, I got to give this over to you. I'm right here. I'm yours. This would be a good time to do that. And then whenever you're ready, take that bread that symbolizes a broken body. Take that juice that symbolizes blood that was poured out for your forgiveness. And then after a few moments, Micah will lead us in a song. Let me pray for us. Father, in these moments, would you guide us? God, you are sovereign and you're good, and so we invite you to prompt us and prod us and push us and form us and make us. Holy Spirit, have your way. We are yours. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at nchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces making much of Jesus every day to everyone.